Welcome to another bonus episode of Surviving Empathy. I am your host, Brian Russell of Chef Fry Comedy, and today I'm talking with Keith Burr. He's a comedian, and uh, you can reach him at keith.burr on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, just And if you're having trouble finding him, just search Keith Burr. It's B-U-R-R. And here is part two of our three-part conversation about society and politics and culture and everything in between. So please enjoy but you're right um it, 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 uh, oh, i lost my train of thought um uh yes what did you say what was People that last thing that you we said? think of more mighty uppity what, what was the last thing you said the last point you made there oh um that people think that we must think really highly of ourselves yes okay yeah thank you yes i i definitely believe that's a part of it because i think a lot of people nowadays uh think that if you go into something like showbiz uh that you just have a very high opinion of yourself or you're just very confident or you're just very into yourself or you're very selfish or something like that they always think you're going to be some dark triad type of trait and uh i mean oh absolutely not not to interrupt you but um, no go ahead a lot of and this is something that's really a foreign concept to me is giving myself credit where actually I deserve it instead of just talking shit about myself or just self-deprecating to a point where I'm still good at what I'm doing, but it feels like I'm maintaining people's expectations of me and their opinions. And that's a, that's a delicate balance to have to like keep up and it's, yeah. it's exhausting. And yeah. I've just never gotten into the point to where I know that I'm good at this. I mean, I'm right. irregularly talented at, you know, just, being comedic or pulling the comedy out of otherwise not funny situations because it's Mm -hmm. been a crush that I've had to use my entire life. Like I deal with fucked up situations and things that happen in the world through this view of ironic detachment. And yeah, yeah. well, that's where, yeah, no, I think uh, I agree with you. I think I developed my sense of humor as a way of a form of deflection towards the fact that I was actually, uh, I grew up poor. I didn't have a father growing up and uh i lived in uh, apartments and trailers growing up and i think uh i developed a sense of humor as a form of uh, uh detaching myself from the reality that i was actually hurting on the inside you know so yeah, so, yeah. i did the same thing um with, i was diagnosed uh, as on the autism spectrum whenever i was 24 years old mm-hmm. and that helped and I kind of, you know how fucked up it is to be like going through your entire life, like thinking I might be a little bit autistic and then be like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and yeah. then have somebody confirm it. Like it wasn't a, like a detriment to me. It was like, okay, well that makes a lot of fucking sense now. All right. I want to go ahead and just deal with the rest of it accordingly. Yeah. You know, having that really helped. Like I'm definitely on the fortunate side of, you know, being high functioning, but with, with high function comes some, some deficits, man, some deep, deep, deep deficits. And like, I have to deal with those. And a lot of the ways mm-hmm. that I deal with those, like being just over, overstimulated, just a little overly emotional about some things that otherwise don't warrant the way that I feel about them is through that scope of ironic detachment and being able to make fun of those things to a point where they're no longer like having any bearing on my life. So like emotionally. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I grew up, uh, with my uh, a group of friends we were all you know because like for me i didn't i was always funny i was kind of like bobby hill growing up you know i and people think that's weird because i'm from california but no we we had bobby hills in california too you know i was a little chubby kid uh always doing voices and uh you know i always wore like shorts and uh like bright flashy uh shoes and uh i was I can't say I wasn't good at athletics because I actually kind of was. I played soccer and I, I did judo and karate. I was never into football and all that. But um, but I, 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 I kind of went through a chubby stage where I stopped my – what happened was I played soccer for ten, like many, many years. And then uh, one year I didn't uh, get on the team that I had been on all those years. And it really fucked me up. Like I couldn't understand why. Um, and And so – as of because I was so hurt by that, uh, I ended up sort of uh, losing contact with my current friends 
that were all on the soccer team with me, my jock friends. And then I ended up becoming friends with more of like the chubby kids and the kind of, you know, hang out and watch movie type kids, you know? And so that's where I kind of learned uh, that there was something other than athletics. Uh, We, you know, we, we, you know, we did like a lot of, uh, you know, comedy when we were watching movies and imitations and voices. And, uh, you know, I, I put on a little weight during that time. And, and uh, that's kind of where I really got into pop culture and movies and all that. Um, and that's where I also learned uh, my confidence, though, in myself, because before that, my confidence came from my, you know, how well I could kick a soccer ball or, or how well I could be a, a soccer goalie. And, and so, um, yeah, I, and another thing I didn't realize until much later is that I think part of the reason why those – I don't believe my coach was responsible for not picking me that year. I believe it was his son because his son was on the team with me. And I believe his son uh, looked down on me because I was one of those poor kids. I didn't have two parents growing up. I rented when everybody else had, you know, houses. And so I I didn't know that when I was younger. But as I got older, I started to realize that some of my uh, shortcomings were based on socioeconomics because I never even understood that concept until I was in my 20s. And then as I started getting older, I realized Ah, the reason why I didn't make the soccer team is because uh, Wally's, that was our soccer coach, Wally's son, Mark, uh, didn't like me because I was one of the poor kids. And so he probably Mm -hmm. had an influence on his father and who to pick on the team. And so um, I ended up on a different team that year. I ended up becoming their star forward. um, But it didn't feel right because we lost almost every game, <laughs> even though I was their star, I was, we were still the worst team in the league. And so uh, it just felt oh, kind of half. Yeah. It was like the team that was like the bad news bears. It was so bad that it was like, just go home, you know? And so it, it really got me down. I, it, it kind of ended my quote unquote soccer career and as a kid. And that's what got me uh, gaining weight because I was sad and miserable uh, it was the first big letdown of my life. And, and so I kind of put on a little bit of weight and I started hanging with a different crowd and they were good, a good crowd, but they were just different. They weren't, they weren't athletic. They were just, yeah, they were intellectuals. Yeah. They were much more intellectuals and much more sensitive and, you know, like, you know, 10 and 12, you know, 12 and 14 year old kids who stay up to watch Johnny Carson and, uh, David Letterman. I'm aging myself here, but yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what we were. We were the kids that would stay up till one thirty because uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was on uh, David Letterman, you know. <laughs> so we would stay up for the comedy, you know. Um, and that's you know, yeah, you know. And then we got into Saturday Night Live and all the impersonations. And so you know, um, uh, the eighties and the nineties were a huge time um, for me uh, for comedy and for comedians. And so I, of course. Uh, I had that other side. I had that uh, desire to be a, a, so- a star soccer player and a- athlete and all that. Um, but but where I really learned about myself was through comedy and my friends and doing impersonations and all that. Uh, and that's where I really picked up comedy. Um, and then and then I ended up going into the military, uh, which was kind of the opposite. I had no intention of going in the military, and then it kind of happened through circumstances i was running out of options and so i went in the military um, and i did that and then i got out and i went to college and i did pre-med i was going to be a chiropractor um but i ended up yeah yeah and then i was gonna that's weird yeah that's that's exactly what i did holy shit really yeah wow Um, yeah go ahead wow that's um oddly oddly um fitting um, I, I decided I was, I was desperate. I didn't know what path I was going to take my life or my career. Yeah. Well, I had no career to speak of, so I figured I would manufacture one. I figured the Air Force would do that for me, and mm-hmm. which they were ready and willing to. You know, I'd, mm-hmm. got my, I'd gotten through the ASVAB and went through MEPS and all that, and, and I had a, had my job lined out for me as a fission analyst, and then um, got a DUI. <laughs> So, <laughs> me too. I was 23. <laughs> are you shitting me? 
I'm not kidding you. I got my first DUI when I first got out of the military. I was 23. I got my first DUI, my first and only DUI. And it, yeah, shit. I never I, did I, it again. 23 too. I called it my Michael Jordan. <laughs> That's it, man. That's funny. Oh, wow. We do have more in common than I thought, man. Wow. Crazy. And then I decided I was going to, well, that was, but it was like in two different um, placements, though. I was going to be a chiropractor first. And then I realized, oh, chiropractors are pretty much just witch doctors. So I'm going <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm to go into uh, the Air Force here and let them give me some structure, a little bit of uh, like a form to my life. And yeah. then that DUI happened, and uh, I, I don't think I've ever been, like, I might be the first person ever grateful for a DUI, because right. I talked to some of my friends that were in the Air Force after, and they're like, I'm fucking miserable, bro. I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, I'm in logistics. So like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, bro. maybe it was a blessing yeah. in disguise. It could have been but, because it's not for everybody, you know. Um, it wasn't even for me, to be honest. I mean, I, I did it for a time. Ended up injuring my leg, and it gave me an option to get out early, and I went for it. And um, unfortunately, I didn't know at the time, but I, you know, I, I served most of my time, and so I, at the end of the, all that, I did all like I did like three years, and I got out like six, seven, eight months early, um, and it screwed me out of my uh, GI bill. And I didn't know that at the time. They were like, "Oh no, get out early," you know. That way, you you know, since you're resting and healing and doing rehab on your knee anyway, because I had injured myself on a on a run, uh, and so they're like, "Yeah, there's no point to be here," you know. They talked me into getting out early, and I did it. And then when I went to go use my GI bill for college, it wasn't there, and so I had to fight and appeal and do all these things. Uh, long story short, I lost. I never got it, and uh, so I was bitter for many, many years in the tw- in my twenties uh, over that. Um, and then, um, and then I ended up. Uh, I, I was studying to be a chiropractor. I was pre med. I was in junior college. I was working at a pizza joint. I was a, a delivery driver. Uh, and then uh, my best friend is the one that got me kind of into uh, pre med for chiropractic. Uh, I was getting all those, you know, science courses and biology and all that. And then I went up to uh, the Bay Area where he was living to to finish to go to chiropractic college. So when I got out of the military, I uh, was trying to play catch up with him so that we would both go be chiropractors together. Well, was it the Parker Institute? Uh, it was not, but that, very, very good guess. <laughs> it, uh, it was the other one. It was Life West Chiropractic, but um, oh. yeah, it was in uh, the Bay Area there, uh, San uh, Leandro. But anyway, uh, just finishing up my story real quick. Um, so when I, he's like, "Well, come on up. You know, you're going to graduate here in 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 a, in a year or so. You, you know, I want you to see the school, and that way you'll you'll know what you're getting into." I'm like, "Yeah, okay," and so. I drove up there and we made a trip of it and uh, I went to the school and I hated it. I hated them so much. They were like, cause by then I'd already been in the military. I'd met a whole different type of people, uh, people from all over the country. Um, and then here's these like pompous little white boys in their little docker pants, all acting, you know, superior to everyone, you know, and they just had that swagger and that like, rich kid attitude doctors shit on chiropractors just it's like true kids. man there's an insecurity there it's a built-in insecurity absolutely <laughs> yeah um and so i i had a bad experience and so i got home like I, of course i had a nice weekend we hung out and we went to a metallica concert and all that it was fun but then i got home uh because i lived you know three four hours south of there and so i i drove home after everything and and uh you know i was just like going back to school and doing my job and uh, over time, uh, you know, I was just really debating whether that's what I wanted to do because uh, after the military, I had learned a new side to myself. I didn't really want to be a police officer or some action job, but I definitely didn't want to be some buddy wearing like dress clothes either. I was like, nah, that's not me. And so uh, I, for after a lot of debate and talking with my mom and trying to figure it out, I decided uh, because at that point, I was really lost and I was still going to college. And so um, I spent a lot of time. That was the time when everybody was kind of getting into Food Network and uh, Emerald Lagasse and Bam and uh, Alton Brown and all that cooking stuff. And so uh, I got 
really excited about going to culinary school. And so I ended up visiting a culinary school down in uh, L.A. in Pasadena, where my family is originally from. And long story short, um, I loved it. And I went to culinary school. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. I got my culinary degree. Well, a lot of people aren't fortunate enough to be able to ask themselves that question of, is this what I want to do? Is this going to make me happy? Will this be fulfilling to me until they're mm-hmm. already 55 years old and the best part of their life's already passed them? You know, you, know, you can make a case for, you know, you can make the best life now. But, you know, whenever you're 25, it's a lot easier to enjoy the nice things than whenever you're 60. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, they, there's an old saying that um, youth is wasted on the young. And yeah, that's because yeah. and that's because when you're young, you don't realize you don't know what life is yet. You're all you know about life is what you've seen in high school. And yeah, what is that saying? Like, uh, I, I was a child. Therefore, I speak as a child. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Go ahead. But um, but yeah, yeah. You know, but that's, you know, and, you know, and then you get older you start getting older and that's kind of what happened with me because, um, you know, like I've, I've mentioned on the podcast, um, I didn't start, you know, cause I've, a lot of people, you know, are like, why are you go, go, doing this now? I mean, you're 47 years old. Isn't it a little late for you to be doing shit like this? You know, but the thing of it is for me, it's a combination of reasons. Number one, it was my bucket list thing that I always wanted to do as I always wanted to go be a comedian, at least try it and see if I was any good at it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that was, uh, always my bucket list dream. Um, but then it it was also because, well, let me put it this way. Three or four years ago, uh, I was working at Lowe's, um, and I, 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 I hate corporations. Like we'll just come out and say it. Um, I hate low pay. I hate the corporate agenda. It all pisses me off to no end. Um, and so I wasn't very happy there, um, although it was okay. I, I had friends there and stuff, and, you know, uh, I made a lot of friends there. But um, I, I was, you know, in my mid-40s, married to my wife. We've been married. Now we've been married, you know, uh, over 10 years, uh, like 11 years. And, um, and, and it was just like, you know, before all this, I, was, I worked in radio down in California uh, before that. I was uh, an EMT for a while. Uh, I was also a, a, a phlebotomist, and I was also uh, I, I was a chef for many, many years. That was my main career for lo- the longest time. Um, but every single one of those careers over time took something from me. It didn't add anything. It only took. It took something from me. And, um, and so I realized when, in my 40s, that I was dealing with really bad, low-grade depression, like situational depression, you know? And so instead of, yeah, instead of turning to the bottle, because I had already quit drinking, like when I was 30, I quit drinking because I was drinking too much. Um, And so uh, instead of, like, you know, going down that rabbit hole, uh, I realized I was just deeply depressed and deeply uh, disconnected to society. I felt like... Mm -hmm. What's the fucking point? I got, I got like, something on that, on that man. That's dude. Yeah. Wait, did you? It's like, did you study me? No. Um, <laughs> holy shit! Let's see. I, I took um. You never took uh, the depression medications or anything? Did you ever talk to a like mental I, health care provider or anything? I I tried um three different types of uh depression meds, um and every single time it it didn't work for me. It, it either made me very anxious. Or it made me feel like I was coming onto acid, or it just made me tired. I couldn't take it. It just my body wouldn't process it. So I got to a point where um, I had quit drinking, and I decided instead of taking that, I would try to use uh, natural therapies along with my fitness. And so that's why I'm such an avid fitness runner now because um, I'm not very good at it. You know, I'm not, don't think I'm like running six minute miles. I'm not. Um, but I've been running now for, well, ever since I quit drinking, and that was when I was 30, so that's 17 years I've been running. Um, and, and uh, you know, I'll take long breaks where, you know, I, I don't run. Um, but for the most part, it's always been there for me, and, and it's what kind of keeps me sane and centered. Um, 
world anymore because running just always seems to reset my body and recalibrate uh, my my happiness and my senses. And so, um, it, you know, I, I some people think it's boring and monotonous, and I can't blame them for that. Um, but for me, running really was the only addiction that was good for me. And uh, I had tried everything else, drugs, alcohol, you know. Um, I feel like LSD was my was like my running for you. Uh huh. Yeah. (laughs) Because I mean, I I take I I tried to take it like once, maybe twice a year, like if I if I even do it that year. But it really it does like a kind of a mental like clearing out your trash can on your computer. It's true. I well, that's why. Um, so, sorry, I'll let you finish. I just wanted to interject that. Um, uh, that's why uh, mushrooms, psilocybic mushrooms, are now uh, legal in the state of Oregon for depression because they're beginning to see that, like you said, um, those psychotropics reset your brain, and so it actually you don't have to take it all the time. You just take it. Like you said, either microdose or you take it once in a great while and it will reset and recalibrate your brain. And, and they're noticing that when you do that, you can go long periods of time where you don't feel depressed. So, yeah, very good. And well, and psychology has caught on to that, too. And they're figuring out the clinical applications for not just depression, but to cure people who have PTSD and other like forms of you know trauma responses that you yeah. know, manifest themselves later in life. But, you know, I, when I don't microdose. When I do it, I make it count. I like. It. I'm a <laughs> well, I was going to say, um, I'm not a straight. People often hear they hear my background, they assume I'm a stiff. Uh, no, when I was in my teens and uh, uh, when I got out of the military, even I, I did acid uh, for a couple years where I was doing it regularly, and so I've probably tripped about I'd say fifty, sixty times. Um, you know, because yeah, I had depression too. And I, it always seemed to help me as well. And, um, you know, uh, I grew out of it. It's not something that I, I, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. Um, but I grew, but it's just not something you can do socially all the time. I mean, you can, but you can't, you know what I mean? As you get older, uh, you just can't hang like you used to. It's such, it's such a, a mind bending experience that if you, you know, when you're, when you get to be in your thirties and forties, um, you just can't hang anymore. You don't, you want to relax. So you'll maybe smoke a little weed or drink a couple of beers and that's more relaxing. Um, well, but in my, those people that are still trying to hang and how pathetic they look. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. And you don't want to yeah. be the 30 year old at a high school party. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, man. That is so it, dude. Yeah. Or that the old guy in the club, you know, as Chris Rock says, the old guy in the club. Where, Back uh, day, we used to shut up, old man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I, and, I um, found out that I didn't really have depression, I don't believe. I mean, I yeah. was definitely embodying a lot of the traits of, like, you know, a typical, just massive depressive episode but mm-hmm. i believe that what it mostly was after i stopped taking all of my depression medication which was about the time that i started uh, to pursue comedy uh it's all uh, i'm not gonna say that they're related things but they're yeah probably me they're probably pretty fucking related i wasn't yeah. depressed i was just disappointed in everybody around me and myself yeah yeah well yeah and i that's why like when i talk about my depression and I talk about it on the podcast a lot. I'm an open book about myself because uh, why, why be, be, yeah. Why be anything else? You know, um, <clears throat> but I have a, other people to come forward. Exactly. You got to give people the courage to be open and honest about who they are and to think critically about the world. Um, but yeah, I never really thought of myself as having clinical depression. I always called it situational depression because I really do believe it is situational. I truly believe, and that goes to this day, that if I had more money, I believe I would be a happier person. I, I, oh, I because people that say money doesn't buy happiness. Oh. You know, that's fine. It might not buy happiness, but you know what? You know, I'd rather cry in a Ferrari than I would in a station wagon. <laughs> That's it, brother. That is so it. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, I think the person who says that money doesn't buy happiness uh, has probably never gone without, you know, (laughs) you know. um, But, yeah, no, I 
I grew, um, I grew more increasingly jaded and cynical with society and I'm still there. But the difference is, is that uh, I would say five years ago, I was still very cynical and negative about it. And, and now that I have the podcast and I'm doing the comedy, I've really taken all my negatives and turn them into a positive. And that doesn't mean that my life's perfect. It's far from perfect. I wake up with anxiety. I wake up with, I have a small touch of PTSD. Um, so it's not perfect. I still wake up with mental health problems. I still have insomnia. Uh, I still deal with things. But, um, but now I feel like I have control over uh, my life when I didn't before. And so my situational depression fuels my i mean we wouldn't be sitting here talking you and i if i wasn't sitting here bored with my complacency it's a saturday night i should be out doing something fun and i'm not uh because there's a pandemic and i've gotten used to not leaving the house and and uh i was just doing my social media saying hi to my my peeps as i call them you know my my audience the people that come you know i have a very small but loyal following and uh and they've gotten to know me over the podcast because i am so open about things and um yeah i just um i think the reason why you know uh if i wasn't pushing myself to be more spontaneous to be more uh social i don't think you and i would have connected because um you know it's not because you know, cause I'm not, I'm not real. I'm too old to care whether or not I'm social with people. Um, but then I realize after long, long, long bouts of being by myself, I love being by myself. I love my alone time, especially as an empath, but I'm at the point now where I realize if you close that door for too long, people will go away for good. And, yeah, um, in that, in that seclusion, I mean, it's, yeah. it's nice. It feels good at the moment, but you can get really complacent in that. Just yeah. in, you're complacent in your complacency, basically. And yeah. you forget these little, little tiny, just nuances of social, uh, social interactions. <laughs> and you'll find yourself like in Ceno Man, like just Brandon Fraser waking <laughs> up out of a fucking frozen rock. And you're like, well, <laughs> holy shit, body's yeah. changed. It's, it's true. Yeah. Cause, um, especially because, um, I've, li- I, I moved from California six years ago and I'm in Oregon now and people up here hate Californians. And so I already had that going against me. Um, but if nobody knows you're from California, nobody dislikes you. Right. So I just don't mention it. Right. And it's like conservatives can't make fun of the fact that you're liberal if they don't know you're liberal. Right. So I don't talk mm-hmm. about it. Um, and so, yeah, I just try again, going back to that soft language, um, when you present yourself as just a person instead of, you know, this one thing, um, people have a tendency to warm up to you more. And then by the time they find out that you're liberal or by the time they find out you're from California, they already like you. So they kind of eh, eh, well, over that. Huh? Yeah, they get over it. Yeah, exactly. It makes <laughs> soft language. Um, George, George Carlin is. My, my oh, favorite to me. My favorite. My favorite. My absolute favorite. I cried when he died. I know, man. And you know what? It was even more sad whenever they kept like trotting him out or he kept coming out like whenever he was just, he was out, he was past his prime. And at this time, I, it was kind of like he was just really jaded and, you know, understandably so, right? Yeah. It, yeah. The, the comedy was gone, but it was just pessimism right. that he was spewing. And, you know, I, as much as I love him, and I still love that and respect that body of work, you know, mm-hmm. it, it kind of like for somebody that wasn't such a diehard fan, I think that it would take away from the whole collection if they were to only mm-hmm. see that, and you know, yeah. it would turn people away from him. But you know, he talks about soft language and how we've used, we've changed our vocabulary so much like, that we yeah, we, I know, know the big talking about. Yeah, it used to be shell shock. Yeah, shell I, shock. I, could, I could quote it, but. Um, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's funny to me, like this society that everybody is so connected in now. It's like we're disconnected from our neighbors, 
but you know we're happy we're, we're fine with it we're still ha- seemingly happy well we get this dopamine drip from the number of likes that we get on our social media because we're like right. oh people knew my opinion but ask like do you know what your neighbor's face looks like no most of the time <laughs> that's and, like, yeah it's this this divide that you know this connection has caused like i guess that you know there's no such thing as a you know positive without the negative aspect of it you know it's this society we have now it makes healthy people sick yeah no i agree very good very astute point like you see these people like you and i like we've had these we have comedy as a coping mechanism but some people aren't funny yeah these are the people that you see like losing their marbles and you know, that's that used to be a strong, healthy minded person. And it's the society that we've constructed around them that's made them sick. It's not a psychosomatic thing, it's a completely environmental thing. Oh, sure. I totally agree with that. Um and that's you know, that's what I was trying to say, uh, generally speaking about being an empath, is that um I sincerely believe that everybody has that ability. We all have antennas. We just choose to raise it up or clip it off, you know. Um, uh, kind of, I think of Bender, you know, with his little antenna. <laughs> you either cut it off yeah. or you or you or you make it longer, right? Um, but I think we're all antennas uh, to those frequencies. Um, yes, there are exceptions where some people are just completely oblivious, but in general, anybody who's got um, any sense at all, uh, I do believe, has that inherent ability to pick up on vibes, to pick up on emotions, to feel what others are feeling um, in varying degrees. Now, my, my wife, uh, she's an empath too. Um, and I would say on a scale of one to 10, she's probably like a three. Myself, I'm more like an eight or nine, you know. Um, uh, it's, it, it took a long, very long time for me to understand what it was uh, and to understand uh, what to do with it and, and to learn blocking and filtering energetically. Um, it's so bad sometimes where uh, I have to close up my house on Mondays because mon- I can feel the anxious vibes coming from my neighbors. You know, oh, shit, man, that, uh, get out of my head. You don't want to live here. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, you probably do you experience that. Yeah. yeah. I can feel when somebody pulls in the fucking driveway, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's strong. It's very powerful. And, um, I, I don't think of it as like this ego thing. I, I, there's no ego involved. I really don't really want it to be quite honest. Um, but because I have it, I have learned to use it and deal with it or, you know, process it. Do you think that you would be better off without it knowing what it, what it can like actually gain you now though? Well, I'm at a point now where, um, I, I am proud of it. And I, I I know it's a part of me, you know, Um, just as any other of my traits is a part of me, I've learned to accept that it's who I am. Um, And so no, I wouldn't really want to get rid of it. I don't think at this point. Um, But there are times where uh, I wish I could feel a little bit less and I could turn it down. Um, And because it I think that's one of the reasons why I've always kind of had a, a because I was, I don't have an addictive personality, but I've, I've always been looking for something to, um, just to, to, to turn it down. Yeah. So alcohol, drugs were always in and out of my life, and uh, you know, and I had to learn to uh, cope in ways that were healthy because it gets real easy to like, well, I'm just going to take a shot of whiskey every time I feel something. You know, it's not yeah. good. It's like you know, um, oh, shoot, I, I, I do have an addictive personality. People fucking love me. No, <laughs> no. Uh, with that, I, I have this little saying: "It's like if um, you know, you take an empathetic person. Like if you're not empathetic, then you know, just take the EM away from it, and that's what you've got. You just got a pathetic person." That's right. That's right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm especially proud of it. You know, uh, I when I was, it was in uh, 2010. It was right after. I was getting uh, fed up with the EMT stuff. I um, I decided to go to massage therapy school. I thought that might be a, a solution um, because that's the one thing I learned is like 
when I was in the military, uh, you know, I always had that, you know, because I grew up on action movies like Schwarzenegger and Stallone. Um, but I wasn't a really butch guy. I was just I, I I I had the what I call the SWAT team dream, where you always want to do some man of action kind of shit. And then, um, but but when I got out of the military, uh, I I slowly started becoming a kind of a hippie peacemonger type, you know. Um, and I think I, I used the saying, "It takes a little war to understand the necessity for peace," um, you know, and so. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big time peacemonger now, um, and I I'm very proud of that. I don't want I would never want to go back. And so I think p- the reason why I, I, I'm good at the radio and uh, talking and and being you know just being able to spew my feelings out uh, is because I'm an empath. Because there has been so much turmoil. Because there's been so much letdown. There's been so much sadness in my heart. Um, and it's still there. It doesn't go away. It never goes away. It just, it's always there. And, and I can get overly emotional very easily. And I can allow myself to get very obsessive compulsive about my thoughts. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it just never goes away, but, um, would I get rid of it? No, I, I wouldn't get rid of it. I, I, I just like to tell it to fuck off once in a while, you know, <laughs> it sounds a lot like loss, you know, mm-hmm. whatever you lose someone that's really close to you, you know, that, that pain never really goes away, but it seems like it just kind of evolves. Like it gets more mature with you and yeah. yourself, you know, you don't miss the person as much. I mean, yeah, you do, of course, mm-hmm. but there are little tiny little things like interactions that you have, like with the world that you wish you could share with them. And that's, oh, sure. That's where that comes in. Like, see, I lost my father whenever I was 14 or 15. I don't even know how old I was. That's how good repression works. But, yeah, like, I'm good with it now. It's weird now that I'm getting closer to his age. That, you right. know, I, um, it's, it's, I'm kind of afraid to get older than him because, you know, that will take away that whole view that I had of him, of this person that had an idea of the world, how it was working. I don't ever want to get to the point where I was thinking that he's just a scared kid like I was. You yeah, because that that take away the uh, what would you, the yeah. I don't even know the word for it. Look at me; it's not every day that I can't think of a word. My God, <laughs> not but, us, uh, not the gift people with gift of gab. We don't usually run out of words. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just it, you can tell that I'm really invested in a subject, or uh, you know, I've got like you know a real attachment to it. If I can't even think of the next word sometimes, but yeah, yeah. I think that that's where um, a lot of the started to manifest like my really cold shoulder or like my cynical view of things. Like mm-hmm. I always had like a comedian's kind of skewed point of view on the world, but yeah. you know, it, that anger and that loss really, it, it fueled it. I mean, cause you know, I know how I felt and my selfishness really led to a sense of altruism that if I can help and like alleviate people of feeling that way, then yeah, I'm going to be selfishly altruistic by helping them to help myself. Right. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. So what is comedy to you? Can you tell me why comedy is what you want to pursue now? If you, if you can put it in like, yeah, well, you know, the way I describe it on the podcast is um, a comedy to me is pursuing pure joy uh, in the sense that I'm not doing it for the fame. I'm not doing it for the for the money. Um, I'm not doing it for the popularity. Um, I'm doing it because um, I've already tried uh, I've already pursued all my other uh, fear zones, my fear challenges. I mean, I, in the military, you know, I I went to airborne school. I did it. It scared the shit out of me, but I did it. Um, I've I've pursued most things that that I wanted to pursue because I was afraid of it. And so the last thing I have really is a, a twofold uh, is a love for comedy and humor. I think humor is one of the very few things in life that brings people together. And when you can be real and, and make people laugh, um, there's, there's nothing 
there's nothing that brings people together closer than not just ha ha funny, but just, um, um, you know, good, good emotions, good feelings. And and so when I, yeah, it really does. Because when people are laughing, they, they lower their guard. And when they lower their guard, they're their true self. And when they're their true self, they dance like nobody's watching. And that's who I want to meet, you know, as an empath, I get very sick and tired of people not being themselves because I can tell the difference when someone's wearing a mask or not. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and maybe that mask isn't even a big deal, but it's just something they put on, you know, uh, because they get tired of being scrutinized at work, or maybe they put that mask on because they're insecure, or maybe, maybe they do it because they're not fully uh, healed from something that traumatized them. Or maybe they just do it because the world's becoming a mess. What was that? Maybe they just like the mask. <laughs> yeah, it's their, absolutely. It's social comfort. It's right, exactly. Because yeah, I've known people like that who uh, who who are always wearing the mask, and I thought, when am I going to get to know the real you? And then you you find out that the mask is a part of them. That they're just not not everybody expresses themselves as freely and as emotionally as you and I. So I've had to learn that some people just kind of wax a little more um, conservative, you know. Yeah, it's like I know I know these big guys that wear that tough mask and never smile in a picture. But my God, you get them like comfortable by themselves, and they're just big teddy bears. They're little yeah. giggle box. Like everybody likes to laugh, but you know, people that pretend like they can't laugh in public are the ones that seem to enjoy it the most. It just is a kind of a character trait that I don't really understand. Like you can be tough and smile, right? <laughs> but yeah. you know with with comedy like what i've noticed is that whenever i'm doing it and people are really feeling it that they really present their best self to me and yeah i, I agree a, it's a beautiful thing man you know it's like there's no more valuable currency in the world than the effect that you have on other people i think and yeah you know, that's all that you, you don't get to take anything with you i don't know like I couldn't tell you like what happens after we die or anything. I just want to be satisfied where I ha- where I am. Like I want my home, like which is the world we live in, to be good, to be comfortable. And if I can help it in any way, like through a couple dumb jokes, like if I can lessen people's hatred by telling them some some little quip that they take home and they think over and mull it over, and then they think, well, you know what? Maybe maybe I don't hate that fellow that lives next to me. Maybe I'm just a little bit, you know, hard headed. It's just shit like that right that makes it worth it yeah that's the kind of comedian i want to be because i you know i think a lot of people they they see chef bright comedy as my brand and then they go to the podcast surviving empathy and they think uh this guy's not funny at all in fact he's not at all funny i, I don't even hear a comedian in there right he's a bit of a roof. <laughs> yeah but and that's the thing is like when you meet me in real life like you and i right now um I don't mind being myself, just be yourself. And if the comedian comes out, then the comedian comes out. Um, the podcast is kind of like, uh, because it's not that I'm a really super serious person in real life. I'm actually not. I'm actually quite um, a jokester in real life, but we live in times that demand uh, a lot of thoughtfulness and, and depth and it requires mm-hmm. analysis. And so, uh, I, I thought there's enough guys out there doing doing the yuck yucks. So I'll I'll be a different type of comedian. And so I believe that my style of comedy, um, and that's and the thing is, this is when you say it out loud, it doesn't sound right. But when my style of comedy is not going to be uh, superficial, it'll probably be more like uh, Bill Hicks. Totally. You know, I love Bill Hicks. Yeah, yeah, you know. Like, yeah, I want to bring awareness to kind of just ridiculous aspects of the world that we live in that, you know, maybe people either like turn a blind eye to or make wheel themselves ignorant to and put it in a funny way that makes them kind of reevaluate it again or come back to it. Like I got one joke that's, you know, being a, being a member of the American Armed Forces gives you the rare opportunity to one day live under a bridge that may be posthumously dedicated to you. Way to have the six. 
<laughs> yeah, that is so true. And, you know, laugh or cry, you know, is, and that's where most uh, comedy comes from is a place of laugh or cry. I've learned that most comedians are usually the most damaged and the most emotional uh, people in, in the world. And um, people make assumptions that, oh, if you're a comedian, you must be shallow or oh, you're a comedian, you must be very extroverted. Um, there's a lot of comedians that are very very much uh, introverted, uh, quiet, shy people in real life, very deep and inside their own head, like myself. Um, and then when they get on stage, they become Robin Williams, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, there's, there's an argument. To be, well, it's not an argument to be made. It's, it's provable. And you, you look at it and it's in every like statistic, most of the people that are the most like, um, you know, propelled or, you know, um, kind of compulsed to make people laugh with the people that have dealt with the most strife and hurt in their life. And, you know, they know what that feels like and how uncomfortable and awful it is and just want to make people to be able to escape that, even if it's just for 15 minutes. Yeah, I, I agree. And that and that's that's the thing that I taught myself when I first decided to do this. Um, I would say it was around 2017 is when I first decided that this is what I want to do. I was very tired of the world. I was very tired of Trump. I was very tired of economics. I was very tired of my place in the world and not getting anywhere. Um, I just was growing. I don't want to say jaded. It was beyond jaded at that point. I was getting spiritually ill. The whole thing. Yeah, just total disillusionment, right. And, um, and while I can't say that it's completely past. Um, I'm learning to take that disillusionment and turn it into something positive. Um, and as cliche as that sounds, um, it's not really that cliche at all. It just sounds cliche, but it's, it's, it's when, it's when you take all your pain and suffering and turn it into something positive. And, you know, and, and if, if I can go and do a podcast with depression, with a, a past where I've dealt with drugs and alcohol and I've had suicidal thoughts before and i've uh come out the other end and here i am 47 years old probably older than most folks that are in the podcast and comedic comedy world um i i can be like a grandfather of sorts i can i can kind of help people understand um what's real in this world and what isn't real and um, and that could be poli- politics and that could be um, the economy and jobs and job opportunities. Uh, and that can be, um, you know, cause like as progressive as I am, I get tired of that hyper woke mob mentality. Like, like we all, we can only get so sophisticated as a people we eat, we poop, we sleep, you know? Um, and while I do have what I would consider refined sensibilities, um, you know, cancel culture, the woke mob, if you will, uh, being overly woke. Um, it's getting, I know that it's in response to the fact that there's a right wing culture out there that's sort of acting crazy and weird. Um, but, but you're, it's just not, again, it's like, we're not reaching across the aisle. Yeah. We're not, we're not creating change. We're just kind of I don't know. We're perpetuating our people. That, a lot of those people that embody that mentality are really people that they're looking for validation through groups like everybody does. They mm-hmm. don't know what they believe. They have to be told what they're offended by. You know, it's like, right. these, and then there's also these people that, you know, somebody takes somebody like sta- standing in their living room and then, then they stand up on a stool to get a better look into their neighbor's window and they get pissed off. They see a titty. That's wrong too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, what do you expect to see? You have wanted to see it. Now that you've seen it, you you can't you can't handle it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like don't go looking for offense because you will find it. Because exactly, you'll you'll make up a reason to be offended just so that you end up the in the right in your own mind. It's yeah. just this fucked up like sense of outrage equals justification. I, yeah. I hate and oh, absolutely. Like it, gives, it gives people a, a, like an excuse to be ugly. And, right. And, and, and you know, to, to think of people, we see that, but they don't surround themselves by that type of person. 
Yeah. So it's you know it's like you're talking about an intellectually stunted echo chamber, and mm-hmm. like with the I can't give anybody offense. They can only be immature enough to take it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And well, yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. And um, the thing is, is that while I uh, intellectually and emotionally lean uh, progressive, uh, I think of progressivism as best practices. I try not to attach any political ideology to it, even though sometimes they overlap. Um, I want the world to simply become a better place. And I believe that uh, progressivism and secular humanism uh, is the best way to do that. Um, and, and that's where a lot of people get really put off by me when they find out that I'm an atheist um, because I'm a very spiritual person too. And that they don't understand how to reconcile that. And then they also see that I have a podcast that's all about positivity and giving hope to people. And they make this assumption that you can't have morality with, um, without God. And for me, yeah. And so, and, and also the thing is, is that I was a Christian for many, many years before I got to that point. So it's not like I started out there. Um, What better way to find out the hypocrisy of it than to be a part of it. Exactly right. And so um, while I don't mind church and religion um, when it's done, uh, I don't want to say when it's not heavy handed, I don't mind it. I, I grew up around the church. I, I grew up in this country, just like you. Um, I've seen the Bible Belt. I've seen what church does, good and bad. And so I don't mind, you know, like your Aunt Fran on Facebook who goes to church every Sunday. That's fine. Whatever. You ain't going to change her. She's 80 years old, you know. Um, and, and I don't mind people who grew up in the church. I don't, you know, um where it starts being a problem for me and for society is when that indoctrination starts to uh, take hold and um, well, to dictate the laws and govern and ways the place you're in governs itself. Yeah, exactly. Right. Where it starts to, um, it starts to get heavy handed and it starts becoming radical or it starts becoming unsustainable. And I, I use that word a lot on the podcast, unsustainable. I, I say it a lot about politics. I say it a lot about religion. And I say it a lot about um, our economy is that if you got to ask yourself, if everybody like here's just a, a random example. Uh, my grandfather was a hunter. Um, I have fabricated meat from his hunts. I have chainsawed deer when I was eight years old with, you know, I have fabricated meats. And that's probably how I became a chef is I got used to gross shit really early. Um, but I'm also an empath. And, and I didn't realize how much it was bugging me uh, to do those things um, because I love animals. And um, anyway, long story short, what I'm trying to, the point I'm making is that if everybody was like uh, Joe Rogan, a hunter, you know, could it be sustainable? No, we would be end up killing every animal on the planet. And so, I just believe there's a sustainability factor with everything. Well, and if something's you know, the, the thing about the way that Joe Rogan hunts, I mean, I'm, I'm not like I'm to, you know, the, the aid or defensive, like, you know, trophy hunter or, well, yeah, trophy hunters are fine too. Well, they do provide a lot of economic stimulation for these places that otherwise have no other means then, you know, to provide like a hunting ground for whatever game it is that's on it. But, you know, if they do it in a responsible way that's, you know, regulated, oh, sure. you know, yeah. then yeah, that would be all right. But I'm fine with problem. that too. Yeah, no, I know what you're going I know what you're saying in the sense that because um, there are certain, like uh, they, they put out a, a certain amount of deer hunting licenses uh, to deal with uh, the overpopulation numbers of deer. So they know how many licenses they can put out. And when you thin those numbers, it's it's good for our society. So in that regard, I don't mind it. My, you know, I'm not some anti-hunter person. I grew up around it. I was a junior NRA member when I was a kid. Um, and just that, Ooh. yeah, Man. well, I didn't know what it meant in those days. You know, I just knew <laughs> I got to play with guns, you know. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
I, I love. I mean, I love to shoot. Uh, I mean, it's it's fun. Oh, yeah. you know, it's a good, sure. it's a fun little hobby. It's also, you know, it might come in handy one time. But you know, these hyper vigilant yeah. people running around with a gun on their waist, looking for any situation to be able to like, pop off. Yeah, that's that's the dangerous part. Well, yeah. What you were talking about um, with the churches and how they're starting? Well, not they're they're not starting to. They've always had like their roots into every facet of our society. Yeah, mm-hmm. under the guise of separation of church and state, which is a laughable thing. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it's whenever it's religion is a lot of people's favorite toy, and that's fine. Oh, yeah. They can play with it. You know, just don't make me try to play with it. That's where it gets dangerous. Yeah. 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 Well. The the secular humanist community that I, you know, because I tried to become an atheist a few years ago, <clears throat> and then I ended up watching this uh, documentary about these scientists who were also atheists, and um, they would, the documentary kind of allowed you into the the world of atheism and all the different atheistic groups, and while some of them are fine, um, what really kind of turned me away the first time the atheism didn't take the first time because i found it very mean-spirited i was like wow they seriously hate people that go to church you know and they like to mock and make mock and make fun of them right and so i never wanted yeah yeah and i think i did it a little bit too back in the day um well i haven't been an atheist that whole time but i just mean there's been times when before i found religion where i was that way as well right and um yeah, I, I just, yeah, I, I'm at a point now where, um, you know, with anything, I just, uh, there's, extremism is what's killing a lot of systems. Um, yeah. You know, the Republican Party would be fine if it wasn't so radicalized. Uh, church would be fine if it wasn't so radicalized. Uh, Islam wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't so radicalized. And so how do you, you know, how can you yes. temper how can you temper these things down where they, cause it's not, I, I'm, I don't want to water things down. I don't want to make things less, you know what I mean? Like I don't want to dilute things. I like if something is what it is, I don't want it diluted. Um, we need robust change. We need robust thinking. But that being said, um, when you start militarizing and, and radicalizing people, whether it be political or whatever, um, it just becomes, a society uh, that is is just is not going to uh, it's just not going to get better. It's just not going to improve. We you know our our society is becoming more and more uh, radical uh, as a result of Fox News, as a result of uh, a lot of these media people out there who are shock jocks and whatnot. Um, and now that pande- the, there's a pandemic here. Um, you know, a lot of people are trying to make this, draw this line in the sand that, you know, the freedom people are like, well, I got a right not to wear a mask. And, um, you know, I'm reminded of Darwinism. It's not the biggest, strongest people who survive. It's the most adaptable, you know. And so mm-hmm. um, I don't understand why, quote unquote, the biggest, strongest among uh, amongst us, all these big Trump supporting patriots aren't strong enough to understand to do their part. It's not a big deal. This is a, this is a new thing in history. I believe that we're coming into, we're finally in a stage of, you know, civilization where we don't have to be the biggest, strongest, meanest person to survive. We have other out, we have other means now and it's Mm -hmm. starting to reward the intellectual more. That is the brute. And, you know, we're, we're seeing that a lot, but you know, with a lot of the way that society is structured, the intellectual is kind of shamed now because what is it right. to be intellectual other than to ask questions? And mm-hmm. what are questions to politics and religion and these foundational like institutions that gave us the society that gave us the society, the cancer to them because you, you can't, if you look at who you're not allowed to make fun of or ask questions about in a society, that's that's the corruption right there. Right. The people right. that feel like they're sacrosanct to any kind of just scrutiny or bad talk or how dare you even ask the question. Well, we're people. That's what we do. You know, we ask mm-hmm. questions and we try to learn from them and then we try to you know make our lives the best 
that we can after we get the answers to the questions. I mean, it is about being adaptable, but it's about the environment that we have to adapt to. I think that, you know, do you want to adapt yourself to a mal environment that's terrible for the most part, but you're just getting along because you can adapt to it? Or do you want to yeah. try to bring like those other people up oh. to par and make, make them be able to live in it comfortably? You know, it's not my job to be able to, to like spoon feed these ideas to people. You know, it's not a responsibility or anything. You know, it's just kind of this innate thing in me. Like I don't believe that I'm smarter or, you know, more intellect. Well, I am. Okay. Fuck that. Yeah. I'm. <laughs> <a pretty laughs> You're smarter. It's okay.